empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. If you're taking notes tonight, the first thing I want you to write down is that this is a Marvel Universe heavy church. I don't think I heard a single DC superhero. Anyone mention Batman or Superman? Is that, see that shows how ignorant I was. The joke has already imploded on me. Um, As you see in your bulletins, my name is Will Stockton. I'm one of the pastoral interns here at Grace downtown. Um, And I work for our ministries denomination on Capitol Hill. So if you would bow and pray with me as we turn to look at God's word. Um, Father, we come before you thankful that we are given this time and space to worship and praise you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, who died the death we should have died, um, who rose uh, to glory and who sent his spirit. Thank you for um, this new life into which we have walked, that this is a time uh, where we can come and just praise and proclaim you. May your Uh, glory be in the forefront of our minds. Um, May we see you lifted up. We love you in your name. Amen. Well, as you can see from this passage we're looking at this evening, uh, it's what you probably would call intense. You can almost sense immediately that Paul is worked up. He's irritated. He is angered by a group of false teachers, and justifiably so. These people are going around corrupting the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that is at the heart of Paul's and our own mission. This level of intensity belongs to a category of passages such as Galatians 5.12, where Paul tells people that he wishes those who are unsettling the church of Galatia would go ahead and emasculate themselves entirely, or 2 Corinthians 3.18, which we'll reference later. Paul cares about doctrine. In fact, when Pastor Glenn first emailed the pastoral residents and and a couple of us asking if we were interested in preaching. I said to myself, yeah, sign me up. Absolutely, I would love to. And then I received my assignment. 1 Corinthians 10, 1, 10 through 16. I read the verses, all Cretans are liars, blah, blah, blah. This testimony is true. Okay, gee golly, (laughs) Pastor Glenn, uh, it's summer for crying out loud, you know. It's kind of light. Maybe we could have some fun with it. Um... Maybe you can give me something a little less intense. So I think let's maybe I can bargain, barter. Look at the first nine verses. Elders, okay, someone with experience. Let's let someone who actually knows what they're talking about handle that. Maybe, maybe later in Titus, Titus 2. Flip forward, start reading. Young women, be submissive to their husbands, working at home. All right, you know what? I'm a big fan of Titus 1, 10 through 16. In fact, it is one of my 
favorite passages in all of Scripture, and I have been looking forward to preaching it for a while. In all seriousness, uh, I want to say something considering this passage as we look at it. Um, the remainder of Titus, or all of God's Word, is that it often does offend our sensibilities. We could flip back to the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament and read, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We could turn a couple pages forward to Jeremiah and read, The heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The point is that God's word does not always tell us what we want to hear. It doesn't always tickle our fancy, but it always tells us what we need. His word is faithful and does not return void. He works through his word like a doctor bringing healing. It might be painful at times, but it is always for our health and good. In fact, one of the words used by the Bible, one of the words used by Titus or by Paul in this book for good sound doctrine is the word healthy. God's word is good for us. It brings healing to the body. And so with this in mind, let's turn to Titus 1, 10 through 16. But I want to start by giving a little bit of background and historical cultural context for the island of Crete. We'll then look at what Paul is so upset about. We'll look at why he is upset. And then we'll look at how this affects us. That is, what is upsetting, why it is upsetting, and how Paul's response affects us. I have one more confession to make, and that is my first introduction to the derogatory term Cretan. Did not come from scripture, at least not that I can remember, uh, but it came from the great cinematic masterpiece Monsters, Inc. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but towards the end of the movie, the evil Randall has captured Mike Wazowski. Uh, Randall is played by Steve Buscemi. Mike Wazowski is played by Billy Crystal. John Goodman is also in the movie, so we're talking like talking about summertime fun. I mean, this movie is full of it. And so uh, Randall calls Mike a Cretan, and then in perfect Billy Crystal style, he corrects the pronunciation, says, if you want to threaten me, do it properly. So I say that to say, if you're looking for the correct pronunciation for the word Cretan, I can recommend no better place to you than Monsters, Inc. Um, so if you were to flip to the back of your Bibles, not now, please, uh, and look at the maps that are back there, you would see the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. One of the things you'll notice is that it was a, it's a rather large island. It's the fourth largest island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's the 88th largest island in the world. But it had something of a tumultuous history. It is believed that during the Bronze Age that Crete was the first uh, civilization in Europe that would place Crete at the heart of the Greek world. But by the time of the Roman Empire in the second century BC, Crete had declined considerably, so much so that the island actually became a base for piracy. Okay, so now we're starting to get a little bit of understanding why Paul would be so upset. This isn't the fun Pirates of the Caribbean uh, jolly type pirates. This is a rough group of people. And then around 67 BC, the Romans finally put a stop to piracy on the island. It seems that Crete's reputation for immorality extended far and wide. In, the, in your Bibles, you have the quote, Cretans are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Most likely from Epimenides, who is one of Paul's favorite poets. Um, he cites him in Acts 17 as well when he gives his sermon at Mars Hill. But wait, there, there is more to say. Glenn actually fed me some of these wonderful quotes, so I'm about to read some, some more quotes about Crete to give us a little bit of context. Uh, the ancient historian Polybius wrote that it is almost impossible to find 
personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. The great orator Cicero said, moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. Then lastly, so much so in fact do sordid love and gain of gain and lust for wealth prevail among them that the Cretans are the only people in the world in whose eyes no gain is disgraceful. The Cretans, on the other hand, owing to their ingrained lust of wealth, are involved in constant broils, both public and private, and in murders and civil wars, end quote. Okay, what's going on here? Is this bully the Cretan hour? Are we looking to attack the ancient who can't defend themselves? Although it would be interesting, actually, if we could bring a Cretan up here and we hand them and we say, hey, this is your chance. Uh, we have three quotes for you. We'd like for you to read them. One's from Polybius, one's from Cicero, one's from Epimenides. We'd like for you to read them and, and give us a response. Tell us, what do you think about these? And he would stand here and read and go, oh, no, yeah, that's, that's about right. This is exactly the world that I grew up in. And so Paul is accurate in his description here of this island. And heaven forbid that this become an exercise in self-righteousness for any of us. Instead, I think it is important for us to gain a better understanding of the context and why Paul advises Titus the way that he does. What we see in these quotes is that the problems that are facing the church on Crete are both individual and broadly cultural. They are individual insofar as there are clearly particular men who are preaching for false gain. It is broadly cultural insofar that the people are acting in concert with their ethics of their culture and not their church. And so when you read this passage, Paul's concern is not so much in condemning Cretan culture, but in protecting the peace and purity of the church. That is first and primary concern here. There are some good questions, I think, also that we could ask ourselves with that in mind. What do I believe and why do I believe it? Why am I acting the way that I am? Is it, well, that's just how I was raised? Well, that's a good thing if it was according to Scripture. Is it, well, this is how people in my industry do things. This is just my friend group. This is how we behave. Well, that can be fine and good if those practices are ethical. What we're beginning to see is that God's concern is not just with our justification or our salvation, that, he is, that we are reconciled to him, but God is also concerned how the cultural forces around us shape us and how our primary formation ought to be as God's people and by his word in and through his church. So now let's look at what Paul is so upset about. The old phrase, old habits die hard, seems fitting here. Maybe you can picture the situation in your head in the context of creating the sociocultural descriptions that were just given to us. A church is planted. Paul leaves the young Titus to preach the word, administer the sacraments, and shepherd the flock. In a place that was once known for piracy, lawlessness, and justice of all sorts of wickedness, the gospel grabs hold of people's hearts. Things begin to change. Merchants who once extorted their clients begin to sell their goods at a fair wage, fair price. Husbands, cold and callous to their wives at one point, began protecting, leading, and serving them. Fathers stopped exasperating their children, and children began obeying their parents. Government officials acted as though they were accountable to God and not a bribe. In a world like this, it is not just that things would have been better, but they would have been noticeably better. Additionally to this, there is the reality that 
all those who change, were bringing about these changes had something in common. These people called themselves followers of the way or Christians. They met on Sundays and gathered to worship their God. They followed the teachings of a man named Jesus and believed that he himself was the Son of God. And it is within this context that we'll need to pull together a few verses to get a sense exactly what these false teachers were doing. And so in verse 16, 10 through 16, we see that they are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, not only those, but they are, that is a particular group that is having an, perhaps an outsized influence. They are devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from truth. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Here we have men looking to capitalize monetarily or gain respect, prestige, or power for themselves. This is what the Bible is alluding to in verse 11 when it says that they are speaking, when he speaks of them doing things for shameful gain. It seems that part of the challenge that Titus was facing on Crete was that the church was being attacked from multiple angles. On one side, he had the circumcision party. That would be those who believed that one had to adhere to certain portions of the Old Testament law that in reality completely fulfilled by Jesus. On the other hand, here are those who said commands of the people who turn away from the truth. This would be any man-made social norm or value. Both of these would have the appearance of wisdom, perhaps, but would in fact be nothing more than man's foolishness. Foolishness that couldn't and wouldn't bring about spiritual transformation. The work of the Holy Spirit was witnessed by charlatans and hucksters, and they looked to cash in. They were the dangerous wolves that Pastor Glenn mentioned last week. Think of the quote that he said that, well, John, he was quoting John Calvin, but, you know, same thing. Uh, John Calvin, who said that the pastor must speak with two voices, one to gather in the sheep and the other to ward off the wolves. The pastor must speak with two voices, one to call in the sheep and the other to ward off the wolves. And those wolves were prowling around on the attack to exploit the flock. And Paul was encouraging Titus to let none of that into his church. In one sense, this sort of opportunism is not surprising at all. We see it all over the place, don't we? We see it in our own day. Could be anything in a less significant way. It could be something like a weight loss solution with false hopes and expectations. You know, the, the, the new three-step plan or the zero-step plan that's just come out. Um, a phony seminar or self-help book to boost productivity or happiness or even a conference that produce happiness through productivity. On a more serious note, we see things like the prosperity gospel that preys on people's vulnerabilities and insecurities, or a performance-based righteousness that attaches salvation to the number of your good works. All of the above arise because they mimic or mock something that is true. Counterfeits arise because the real thing has value. To use an example, no one would create a counterfeit Confederate currency. Well, hopefully, you know, for more than one reason, of course, but certainly because for the good reason that it has no value. There's, there's no worth to it. It doesn't mean anything. And so, but, but in, in one sense, we can take, I think, an encouragement from this in that when we see the false uh, gospels that are out there, the perversions of the true gospel, that we have something that is real and good and true to give people in its stead. 
And these real, these teachers in Crete are producing a counterfeit Christianity by adding to it or subtracting from it. You know, there are places in our own lives, I'm sure, that we are tempted to add to or take away from the gospel. I'm not sure where your temptation might lie. Maybe you struggle with legalism. That is, you want to add and add and add to the gospel. You believe that Jesus died for your sins, of course, but you still think you need to work for his love. And so you view your works as belonging to the credit side of the ledger with your heavenly father, earning his affection and favor deed by deed instead of a loving, joyful obedience as a son or daughter of the king. To be completely candid, I know that this is something I struggle with deeply, truly. Maybe it's lawlessness. Again, you believe Jesus died for your sins, of course, but you resist following God's law out of a resentment or a fear. Maybe you're holding on to some idol for fear of a loss of control or happiness by, obey, by obeying God. Maybe you're here and you're neither of these. Maybe you fall into a third category. Maybe you don't know Jesus at all. Well, then let me introduce to us why Paul is so upset. Paul treasures the pure gospel of Jesus Christ and wants that believed and followed above all else. And here we have our second point. This is the shortest of the three. Verse 11 gives us a clue of the consequences of these false teachers. We are told that whole families are growing upset. Perhaps the scene looks something like this. A family is sitting around the dinner table and one of the members over dinner says, you know, I heard a man say today that unless I followed all of the Jewish food laws, I wouldn't go to heaven. Or if I don't speak in tongues, my faith is invalid. Or don't waste your time pursuing holiness. God isn't actually interested and doesn't really care about that sort of thing. These unbiblical statements are deeply unsettling. I don't know if you've had any of those spoken to you, but when they hit us and when people add or subtract from the gospel, it can, it can be very uncomfortable. It can very, um, be disease-creating. In addition, they sow distrust and infighting among members of the household of God. They foster fear and anxiety, poisonous and toxic fruit grows. The exact opposite sort of fruit that is developed within us by the true gospel. What is the true gospel? What is it that God wants for us to believe instead? For one, it's 1 Timothy 1.15, quote, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came to to the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. It is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the wisdom of God that is foolishness to men. But it is a wisdom that brings healing and repair. A wisdom that brings the dead to life to live lives of flourishing and abundance. We see lives change not only on Crete but throughout all the pages of Scripture and even in these pews here. And it was, you know, it was this wisdom of God, counted as foolishness by men, that encouraged and led Paul to plant this church on Crete. I mean, think about it. If there was any place that should have been discounted, it was this island. If there's any place that, so the, the, the real strategy is say, don't waste your time there. It isn't worth 
going somewhere. It was Crete. But as the theologians Douglas Moo and D.A. Carson point out, quote, the letter to Titus is clear evidence that the Christian church is not intended to function only in cozy, respectable, middle-class environments. The gospel is for the most unpromising people, end quote. Amen? May I say, so is true for all of us, apart from Christ. We are of the most unpromising sort, and yet still the same, the gospel comes forth to us. So when Paul gets worked up about bad doctrine, we're not reading the ramblings of an egghead, but the words from the heart of a pastor. First and foremost, how we understand the gospel affects how we understand God. And how we understand the gospel, how we understand God, affects how we worship and how we live lives of worship. One last thing that I think is part of the reason that Paul is um, upset uh, part of the thing that he is concerned about protecting is that the true gospel of Jesus Christ is permanent and unfading. Earlier I mentioned 2 Corinthians 3.18. And in that passage we read that we behold the glory of the Lord with unveiled faces. This is a reference to Moses coming down from Mount Sinai. And in contrast to the glory of the Old Testament covenant that faded, the glory of Christ in the New Covenant will never fade. Paul is saying, do not settle for something that is eternally less. Do not settle for anything that will perish. And so what was true of Christ and Christianity on year one is true for us today in 2022. The truth of Jesus Christ and his church has not changed one iota. His glory is never fading. On Christ, the solid rock we stand, all other ground is truly sinking sand. So now we'll go to our third and final point to see how these things affect us. At the beginning of Titus 1.10, you see that little word for. This word tells us that what Paul is about to say, what we have just been talking about, is going to be demonstrate a demonstration of, of why he said what he said in verses 1 through 9. If you remember, for the last two weeks, Pastor Glenn preached about the God-appointed office of elder. And I think, hopefully we'd all agree, that these verses, 10 through 16, these seven short verses, are a pretty clear indication of why we need elders over us, leading us. The office of elder, however, is not that of an overlord or an autocrat. It's not a dictator, but is a man who is honest, hospitable, a lover of good, trustworthy, and a servant. In a culture such as that of Crete and in a world such as ours, we are in need of good shepherds. Among the many things that elders are called to do is to preach sound doctrine. By this, the unsound, the unhealthy doctrine is rebuked. And so we go back to what was mentioned earlier when the Bible speaks of good doctrine as healthy or sound, meaning that true doctrine is, in fact, the way that the Holy Spirit brings healing to our lives. Not only do our elders serve us the Lord's Supper, as we will take in a minute at the end of our worship service, but our elders ensure that we are fed with a steady diet of God's truth. When we leave these doors, when we go outside, there is no guarantee that we will not be faced with extra commandments with man-made dogmas, sort of thing that Glenn mentioned in our introduction. 
But that is not the case in here. In here we come, we rest, we receive. We rest in the completed work of Christ and we receive the pure truth of God in preaching and the sacraments. We're reminded of what we have, the peace that we have in our greeting to one another. Certainly, this is a high calling. So, in conclusion, as we turn to some points of application, the first thing I would say is I would encourage us all to pray for our elders. Pray for those that God has given us in this particular manifestation of God's church, this congregation. Pray that they would live enlivened lives by the Spirit, inspired by the Word, to walk in the way of the Father. The second is this. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you in your heart where you might be susceptible to what Tim Keller calls counterfeit gods. That is, where are we tempted to supplement the gospel with extra or unbiblical beliefs? Wherever that might be, ask your elders to pray for you. Send them an email. Let them know that you need their help and strength. Ask them to help you be guided in the truth of Scripture. What does God's Word have to say about this? The third and final point of application is this. And this is to all of us. Whether you are a parent with a family, a husband or wife, single with or without roommates, did I miss any categories there? Children? Y'all are gone. Um, we all need to live first and foremost by the Word of God. We need that in our own lives, in our own hearts, and we also need to be sources of encouragement so that others might do the same. We need to gather around and speak truth to one another. We need to have listening ears that listen. Where is the Spirit moving in this conversation? Where is the Spirit leading me so that I can speak truth and love to this brother or sister in Christ? The Bible often encourages us to remember, to remember, to remember, to remember what is real and true and good. And that is not just to counter the false narratives we face, but to be built up in strength and endurance. It is only Scripture, it is only God's Word that tells us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. May we listen to our elders and live our lives according to the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you thankful again um, that you have given us your Word to strengthen us, to deliver us, uh, to bring us um, closer to you and so be healthier. Lord, I pray that we are encouraged by your word. I pray that we are um, loving brothers and sisters to each other. Um, I pray that we pray for our elders. Uh, thank you for giving, us, giving them to us. Lord, I pray that as we go out of these doors that we are salt and light to a watching and weary world and that we have opportunities to discuss and proclaim your truth. We love you in your name.